Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Anyone recognize that line? It's the opening line of Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, that nice, thick Russian novel. Not that there's any other kind of Russian novel, but thick. That line has always stuck in my mind, and I've always had two questions about it. The first is whether it's true whether it's really true that happy families are all alike and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. But the second one is, why families? Why is the question about families? Anna Karenina is a novel about a person, an individual, so why does he open with this focus on family? First, is it true? Is this really true? Of course a novelist is going to think it's true because you can't write a story without conflict. There's nothing, there's no story to tell if everybody is happy because there's no tension, there's no conflict. You can't write well about happiness, which is the reason why happy endings are endings. Whenever we say they lived happily ever after, that's the close of the story. It's not the beginning because if that's how you start your story, nobody's going to stick with you because there's going to be no conflict. So in that sense, happiness never has much of a story to tell. It seems... Uh, bland to us, a little bit like holiness does in the Eugene Peterson quote that Patrick was sharing with us, right? To us, at least, happiness seems to lack interest. And if we measure by the standard that, that Tolstoy is measuring by, whether or not there's interest and conflict in life, then it seems pretty clear none of us must be happy because all of us have conflict in our lives. You probably don't feel like you're living a generic life that the life of your family is just like the life of every other family. Instead, you probably think that you are living in your own way, which in Tolstoy's eyes means you're unhappy, whether you realize it or not. Solon, the great ruler of Athens, once said, call no man happy until he is dead, which is encouraging because he basically means no matter how good things are going, they can always get worse. So don't call that guy happy until he's died happy because... He might be miserable by the end. But I think the Bible gives us a reason to question our happiness, even at our best. Not the idea that if life is going really bad and there's a lot of conflict, maybe we're not happy. But maybe we're not happy in the sense that we aspire to ever. And maybe there's a reason for that. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, as God is, is handing out curses after sin. He speaks to the serpent, he speaks to the woman, he speaks to the man. When he speaks to the woman, this is in verse 16 of Genesis 3, he says to her, your desire shall be toward your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's the exact same way that God speaks to Cain a chapter later in chapter 4 when he talks to Cain about the relationship that he has to sin. He says, its desire is toward you, but you must rule over it. This isn't a happy sort of wedding passage. You probably wouldn't want to break 
Genesis 3.16 out when you're uh, performing a wedding ceremony. Because it's suggesting to us that, that there is strife, that there is conflict in the relationship that we've come to see as the, as to see as the safe harbor from all that strife and conflict out there. We imagine marriage as a kind of sanctuary from all of those things. And yet, we see here built into the relationship between husband and wife, there is a conflict because of sin. It doesn't mean that every marriage will be a bitter struggle. Just like it doesn't mean when God curses labor that every job will be the equivalent of working in a salt mine. But it does mean that there will, even at its best, even at its best, there will be strife. There will be conflict. It will be hard. If we compare ourselves and our relationships and our families to the worst examples around us, then we have something to be thankful for. But if we compare them to the best, if we compare ourselves to how we ought to be, then we see that each of us is unhappy in our own way. Unhappy in our own way because of sin. Because of what sin has done to the world. Is it true that happy families are all alike and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way? Maybe so, except for the happy families part. Because if we're honest, we realize none of us are perfect. All of us have struggles. The only happy families you ever encounter in that sort of ultimate sense are the ones you're not a part of. Because you just don't know what the real struggles are. But why families in the first place? Why even bring families up in a novel that's about a person, about an individual? If you were writing your great thick Russian novel today, you title it with your heroine's name, you would open your novel probably by saying happy individuals are all alike. Every happy individual is unhappy in his or her own way. Because our focus so much is on ourselves as individuals, the way that we function as uh, discrete units. But our rights and responsibilities are alone, on ourselves. And we tend not to think of ourselves, first and foremost, as parts of families parts of larger structures or communities. And yet Tolstoy clearly doesn't think of it this way. He's going to tell the story of Anna Karenina and the choices that she makes, but he's going to tell the story of how that affects everything around her. The impact it has on her family, in other words, the community that she's tied to. It's not going to be like uh, Madame Bovary, where the heroine is a kind of anti-hero hero who becomes a hero of, of individual liberation in a weird way, this will be different. This will, will show the moral um, damage done to the family by the choices of the individual. Tolstoy thinks in terms of families, and the Apostle Peter does too. In our text this morning, and in the text that we've been looking at the past few weeks, we've seen not an examination of what our rights and responsibilities are as individuals, but instead something more complex, which is how we as individuals relate to larger communities, how we relate to human institutions, for example, the government, how we relate to those in authority over us, our, our masters, our bosses, our employers. And now, family. Family, the smallest 
of those structures, but perhaps, even perhaps, the most important of those structures. We've gone from the big picture to the local, now to the domestic. Well, hear the words of Peter. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, in God's sight, is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter speaks to wives, and he speaks to husbands, and it's interesting to note that that as he does this, he's speaking specifically at the beginning to wives, in some cases, whose husbands are not believers. It was clear at the beginning of of this, this chain of passages that he was addressing the responsibilities and the duties of believers towards unbelieving authority, obviously talking about the emperor. When he talked about unjust masters, there's a flavor of that as well. And here he's, he's pointing out that he's speaking not only, but maybe particularly to those wives who have husbands who do not obey the word. So again, a theme. How do Christians relate to authority? How do Christians relate to uh, the structures that they're placed in? How do they relate to that authority when it doesn't share their faith? How do we respect authority, in other words, even when we cannot follow it? How do we respect authority even when we cannot follow it? Ask yourself, what do emperors, unjust masters, and unbelieving husbands have in common? What is it that, that, that groups all of these people together. Peter's writing in a culture where subjects were expected to conform to the religion of the state. He's writing in a culture where servants were expected to honor the gods of their masters, a culture where wives had a duty to adopt the faith of their husbands. And in a culture like that, Christians could not help but be a little bit subversive. Now, earlier we talked about the kind of easy... uh, way of talking about Christian counterculture of subversion. Like when we're trying to make Jesus seem cool by saying he's, he's the original rebel, radical, that sort of thing. This is different. Right? These are people who, uh, in a sense, threaten the social fabric of the cultures that they live in by not conforming in ways that they are expected to conform. We said last time that Nietzsche had labeled Christianity slave religion And he was actually building on an ancient precedent. The earliest critics of Christianity, the people who uh, wrote polemics about how stupid Christianity was and you shouldn't be one, the argument that they used wasn't like any of the arguments that you see today. 
The argument, the main argument of the earliest apologists is you shouldn't be a Christian because that is a religion fit only for slaves and women. And who would want to join that? It's for the underclass. It's not, it's not for like the, the noble and enlightened and powerful men of society. We shouldn't dirty ourselves. We shouldn't lower ourselves to that level. And they had a point. Christianity was a faith for women and slaves. It was a faith for the weak. That's exactly what it was. Christians were not persecuted for being different. They were persecuted for undermining, for threatening the social fabric, the underlying realities that people held in common. They really were subversive in that sense. They really were. So Peter, when he writes these words, looking at this possibility, you know, think about this scenario, that you have a, a Christian wife, a wife who's come to faith, and her husband hasn't. And in the eyes of that husband, she's got to seem pretty rebellious. She's got to seem pretty... Um, uh, she's flouting his authority, societal expectations, embarrassing him, calling his authority into question. And Peter says, well, yes and no. Yes and no. On the one hand, a Christian cannot submit to a pagan emperor, an unjust master, or an unbelieving husband if that means disobeying God. Remember the principle that Peter himself quotes in Acts 5.29. He says, we must obey God rather than men. There's no question of Peter teaching here or anywhere else that God loves authority so much that even if authority tells you to do something wrong, you should do it for the sake of authority. Not at all. The authority that you should follow at all times in every way, constantly, is the authority of God above. And any lesser authority who commands you to deviate from that, don't listen, Peter would say. His life would say, his example. On the other hand, though, a Christian must submit, must show respect and deference wherever possible for the Lord's sake. So you see the idea that's being articulated, where it is possible to submit, where it is possible to obey, where it is possible to defer, we should. Where it is impossible, we must obey God rather than men. Our hope, when we look at a broken world, our hope as Christians, when we see everything that's wrong around us, is not to sweep away the broken communities. It is to rebuild them. And if that's true in the larger sense, it is true in the smaller sense of the family as well. Now listen to these words. These are Paul's words. He's speaking in 1 Corinthians 7 about marriage. He's speaking about people who the Bible would, would say are unequally yoked. So the kind of relationship that Peter addresses briefly, the, the believing wife and the unbelieving husband, that's in, in Peter's terms, that's an unequal yoke. You shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. But, of course, we find ourselves in a lot of situations we, we shouldn't be in. You may come to faith and your spouse doesn't. It's beyond your control. What do you do in these circumstances? Well, Paul says this. This is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 15. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, 
she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, when you get to the end of that passage, you might read that and say, okay, well, you know, Paul's giving us a valid, um, a valid way or, or, or reason or justification for divorce. In the case, if the unbelieving spouse wants out, then that's okay. But what's interesting, I think, is how he gets there. Like, he begins by saying that if you find yourself in this relationship that elsewhere he says you shouldn't enter into, this unequal relationship, that you shouldn't seek to get out of it. You shouldn't seek to destroy it, to sweep it away and start over, clean slate. I get rid of my unbelieving spouse and get me a good church-going spouse so we can have a, a good Christian family right from the beginning. And, and Paul says, no. No, if they're content to remain, then remain. Then remain, then continue. Live within the community, so to speak. Live within the family, acknowledging it's imperfection. You might think that as Christians with a commitment to holiness, a commitment to justice, a commitment to, to the law of God that we would seek to topple pagan governments, overthrow unjust masters, and divorce unbelieving spouses so that we can have unstained, un, un, uh, pure, God-fearing rulers, just masters, Christian households. But instead, the apostles teach us to live within these imperfect bonds, seeking to heal them. Not to live without hope. Not to live as if nothing can ever happen. No good can ever come from them. But actually to live in hope within the brokenness. Peter says, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, we seek to win them over to the good by doing good ourselves. I quoted a few weeks ago those, those lines attributed to St. Francis. You know, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And, and I'll be honest with you, nine times out of ten when people say that, I'm skeptical towards it. Because oftentimes it's an excuse not to use words and to think that it's not necessary to use words. But clearly you can see, in the words of Peter, that this is a very biblical sentiment. Peter's saying that the husband who is deaf to the word of God could be won over without a word by the conduct of his believing wife by seeing her respectful and pure conduct. She may not follow him and his faith and his beliefs, but she does honor him. She does love him. This is obviously a much harder calling than the, the seemingly hard, uh, revolutionary, let's break it all and start over idea. Right? It seems difficult to pursue that, that calling because you've got to destroy so much so quickly but it's actually a lot easier than living within the brokenness and not giving up on the unbeliever. And not abandoning them, not cutting them loose, but continuing to live in hope, in hope that they'll come to the truth. Like We have to, as Christians, find a way to respect 
our communities, even when we cannot fully embrace them. To love our families, even when we are not agreed on on the fundamental truths of the world. And we have to find a way to submit to authorities even when we cannot fully obey them. The fact that sometimes our authorities are corrupt, that sometimes they're unjust, that sometimes uh, they do things they, they shouldn't do, isn't our release so that all bets are now off. Instead, we submit whenever we're able, because we submit as unto the Lord. Not for the sake of that lesser authority, but for the sake of the Lord. That's part of our calling. Part of our calling as Christians. As wives. To find the way to do that. How do you respect even when you can't obey? Peter goes on and says something that I think to us sounds like a cliche, which is a real tragedy. He says that the things that make life beautiful are not on the outside, but on the inside. He says instead of outward adornments, a Christian finds beauty, or should find beauty, in inward adornment. Do not let your adorning be external, he says. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I think it's a tragedy that the idea of inner beauty has become a sort of uh, cliche or a truism or, or even a cop-out. You know, it's, it's like when you're introduced to uh, the girl that your best friend thinks you should date, and you say, well, she's got a good personality, as if that's a compliment. Right? We think in those terms, like, like oh, yes, it's, it, what matters is what's on the inside, but it's one of those truths that you say because you're expected to say it, but you still function as if what matters is on the outside. Oh, no, I, I want the inside to be good, but, of course, the outside also has to be good. Right? We look for beauty in both places, but it's interesting. It's really hard for us to find it on the inside when it isn't also on the outside. But I think this is advice that we need all the more today because we are so um, materialistic. Right? We're so consumer-driven, consumer-conscious, so that it's, it's not just the, the people, or, I'm sorry, the things that we buy, but it's like the people that we hang out with, that we uh, cultivate and acquire. like All of it has a sort of advantage behind it. We're seeking some sort of a, a good that isn't a virtuous good. It's more self-serving than that. We are consumeristic even in our moral stances. Here, you know, Peter gives some examples, and these are these are actually uh, like standard examples from ancient uh, moral literature. So when he says the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, you shouldn't imagine here that the problem is Peter's writing to churches that are just way too ostentatious. These people are really wealthy, and instead of giving to the poor, they're just investing in jewelry and clothing and, and that sort of thing. He's writing to poor congregations, but he's making a point in the way that it was often made in the ancient world, like by looking at examples of the things that we do when we think that what matters is on the outside versus what we do when we know that what matters is on the inside. 
And we can treat even like our moral stances as a kind of adornment. Right? And now, you uh, wouldn't do certain things that in the past would have been adornment. Uh, you wouldn't spend a lot of money, for example, on a fur coat and wear it around to show everyone you know, how nice your fur coat is because you might get splashed in paint or something. Well, at least be seen as not a very good person for wearing fur. But it's possible to adopt approved moral stances as a kind of adornment. Right? It's possible to, to cover our bumpers with the right kind of stickers, to adorn ourselves outwardly so that we show off. We show a kind of outward, supposedly moral beauty that doesn't reflect what's on the inside. So Peter's words, if you think about them, can cut really a little bit deeper than you might think. It's, it's, he's, not, he's not just condemning like vain superficiality. He is condemning that, but I think he's getting at something more than that. He's getting at a way of seeing how a lot of things that we think actually reflect inward goodness are just another kind of superficial adornment. I think you see our character and our nature best when you look at the, what are the things that we envy? What are the things that we envy? You might envy other people for their stuff. You might envy them for their reputation. You might envy them for how well regarded they are as good people. We rarely envy people for virtue, costly virtue. It's rare that you see someone isolated and alone and suffering for having done the right thing and envy them. And yet maybe we should. The imperishable good isn't what looks good to the eyes of our admirers. The imperishable good is what looks good in the sight of God. It's what God sees that matters, what God regards that matters. And, and this imperishable good is located, Peter says, in the hidden person of the heart, which is, I think, a very intimate way of speaking. Who you are Deep on the inside, the hidden person that no one else sees, God sees that. I want to make a point in passing here because Peter is addressing wives. I think it would be easy for us to think that every virtue that he catalogs is a feminine virtue. That, that what Peter is doing here is he's speaking to women and he's trying to get them to be more virtuous in a, in a particularly feminine kind of way. But if you think about it, the things that he's saying here, uh, this isn't a call to feminine virtue. This is a call to Christian virtue. Peter is, is calling women, wives, to have a gentle and quiet spirit. And husbands may say, amen. I, I wish my wife had a more gentle and quiet spirit, especially when I'm tired and she wants to talk about stuff. She should be more gentle and quiet with me. But let me ask you this. Where could I go in Scripture to find an example? If I wanted, if as a Christian wife, I wanted to have a good example to follow, who had a gentle and quiet spirit, where better could I go but Jesus? So don't imagine, husbands, that what's being said here has nothing to do with you. But there's no truth here for you to take away as well. So often, we're... Making the opposite point, you know, ladies, don't imagine that the book of Proverbs, because it says here, my son, doesn't apply to you. But here, the same thing is true. There's a truth here for all of us. 
It's true that Proverbs 31 says charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. But in our lectionary reading earlier, 1 Samuel 16.7, that wasn't addressed to Proverbs 31 women. When we read these words, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Right? This is a, a, a biblical principle, a fundamental antithesis between the way we see things, the way God sees them, and we're being told the way you see things, the way you judge things is wrong. The way things look to your eyes is not how they are. How they are is how they look to God. That challenges a lot of our assumptions, husbands, wives, men and women, all of us. And when you think about that example, that passage in 1 Samuel 16 comes from anointing of David as king, as we just heard. David receives an anointing. He's promised a kingdom. He's going to become great and rule a mighty kingdom. And in 1 Samuel 17, he doesn't start ruling. That's not what happens. Something very different happens. David lives a vagabond life on the margins of society. And interestingly, even though he's been promised a crown, he has to continue to submit to the authority of the man who is king, Saul, who he knows has been rejected by God. He's been anointed to be the true king of Israel, and yet he has to live until Saul dies, not by David's hand, respecting Saul's authority even when he has the chance to end it. David doesn't do that. He continues to respect the crown on Saul's head. Saul, the guy who threw a spear at him for playing music, and yet he respects that authority. David models the thing Peter is speaking to us about. It's only in God's timing that he receives a kingdom. In the meantime, he must patiently endure, which should sound familiar. The calling that, that mirrors our calling. It's interesting that it's in the period of endurance and suffering that David actually forms the bonds that last throughout the rest of his, his reign. The mighty men who prop up David throughout his reign in, in uh, good times and bad, when David is, is glorious and, and fearing God, or when he's seducing wives and murdering their husbands. The people who are there for him are the mighty men who were there for him in those wilderness years, who suffered next to him, who patiently endured, seeking the promise that was to come. David is a type of the king to come, Jesus Christ. What David endured was, was a picture of what Christ would endure. And what Christ endured is a picture of what we're called to as well. So it's no surprise that Peter would call wives to endure as Christ did. And then he gives an example. The mighty women of old. He says, the mighty women of old, they set a worthy example for their daughters in faith. David may have had his mighty men, but before those, there were these mighty women who upheld the patriarchs. Peter's rallying cry to wives is not here, as you might imagine, submit to the patriarchy. If anything, he's saying submit to the matriarchy. Look at what those women did. He's referring to the wives of the patriarchs, generally speaking, um, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. But he mentions Sarah by name. 
He says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So it's interesting, oftentimes we'll talk about being children of Abraham, and, and Paul will make the point that what makes you a child of Abraham is having the faith of Abraham. You don't become a child of Abraham through genetic descent. It's possible to be genetically descended from him and not have his faith. But you could be not genetically descended from him and have his faith and become a child of Abraham. And now Peter's using similar language in talking about being a daughter of Sarah. You are his da her daughter if you do what she did, if you have her faith, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Because I grew up in church, and occasionally pastors would have to preach on this text, I remember, especially as a kid, just being fascinated by the reactions of people when texts like this were read. Uh, there was always a lot of levity, a lot of laughter when, when this came up. Some of the funniest sermons I remember, which maybe you're feeling cheated now that you've heard that, but, but they were really funny. Everybody was laughing, and I don't think it was just nervous laughter, but there were some interesting layers to it. Husbands would, would hear... You know, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and they would just laugh and smile and, and use their elbows to remind their wives, I hope you're paying attention, you should take notes on this. And the wives, they weren't scowling, they were laughing too, probably because they knew the story a little better and knew where this reference comes from in the book of Genesis. The husbands might imagine that, that Sarah came in saying, oh, Lord, Abraham, I know your football game is on. I won't disturb you, but I brought you snacks. But that's not where it comes from at all. If you go back and you look at uh, what Sarah actually says, it, it's fascinating. This is in Genesis 18, uh, and it's, it's in the context of the promise. Like a promise is made to Abraham, a promise that he will have a son, but he and Sarah, they're really old. They're past childbearing years. And so it seems really unlikely. And although they don't doubt exactly, they have a lot of skepticism about how this is going to take place. They take matters into their own hands at points. Do a lot of stuff that doesn't look like faith in our eyes. And certainly Sarah's reaction feels not so, so trusting when we look at it in its original context. This is Genesis 18, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself. This is when she hears the promise of the child. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? <laughs> so if you want to be called Lord, there you go. There's an interesting tension there, right? I mean, it's, yeah, she calls him Lord, but not in a sort of subservient or, or um, I don't know, small way. There's, there's like a knowledge here as well. Now, you know, if, if you're familiar with the story, that, that Abraham and, and Sarah, they had an interesting relationship. They'd been through, through some interesting trials, and Sarah's not especially in awe of Father Abraham. But she does love and submit to him and obey him out of faith, out of faith in this promise. And in doing that, I think she gives a wonderful model of what is and isn't being spoken of in this passage. I mean, Christian wives, by Peter, are being called to a life of faith, a life of trust and promise, even when the means by which those promises will be fulfilled don't seem readily apparent. 
even when the authority that you find yourself having to deal with doesn't seem ideal, for the sake of the Lord, bear it and endure it. We could learn a lot from the example of Sarah. All of us could learn a lot from her and do good and do not fear. Peter does turn to husbands at the end, verse 7. And I admit that he speaks to wives a lot more than he does to husbands. So it may seem unbalanced, but actually the, the interesting thing is that he addresses husbands at all. Because unlike Paul in Ephesians 5, when he kind of goes through what, what we call the household code, which is what Peter's been doing, sort of addressing these different power relationships in an order, Peter, it turns out, follows Paul's example, but you wouldn't have known it until this verse. So Paul, if you remember, if you can remember back two years ago, in, in uh, my sermon on Ephesians 5, it's called A New Approach to Power. Uh, it's on the podcast if you want to refresh your memory. But one of the things Paul does that's so interesting is he takes this form that already exists in the culture, which is this sort of uh, household instruction code that philosophers would use to address the responsibilities of various people, what their duties were towards one another. But what Paul does is he flips it. So Paul does not speak the way that, that uh, a Greek philosopher would, first addressing the, the one who is in power and then addressing the one who is subject to that power. Paul begins by speaking to those who are under the power. And then later, he speaks to those who are in power, and how they should use that power, that sort of thing. So Peter follows this same example, except, maybe you've noticed, this is the first time he's ever spoken to that other side of the equation. When it comes to government, he doesn't even address government. When it comes to masters, he doesn't pause after he speaks to servants and say, no, by the way, masters, here's how you should be just. It's almost as if Peter just doesn't expect there to be a lot of emperors and, and, and masters at church. Not even worth bothering with. But occasionally there are husbands. And so he gives those husbands a word. He gives those husbands a word. It's interesting, the word that he gives. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. To live in an understanding way, to have understanding. I mentioned earlier uh, Adam and Eve, that first marital relationship. And you think about the origins of that. Adam existed first. And God looked at Adam and saw that it wasn't good for him to be alone. But it would have been even worse for him to be married and then to continue to live as if he were alone. To live as if it were his needs that were most important. As if the, the relationship existed so that he could be completed and fulfilled. You could imagine if Adam had had the book of Genesis in front of him, he might have looked and he might have said to Eve, maybe in the course of some kind of an argument over uh, whose son Cain was. You know, woman, your son killed my son. It's like, it's both of our sons. You get the idea. He could have looked and said, look, you know, you were just here to complete me. Right? You're my helper. You're, you're supposed to be my helper. And, and so you're here to sort of complete and fulfill the needs of me. And if that had been the way that he approached that marriage, I don't think it would have gone very well. He wouldn't have been living in an understanding way with his wife. To live in an understanding way is to live in a self-sacrificial way that sees that you're no longer alone 
that what matters most is no longer your rights and prerogatives. What matters more to you is, is the good of the other. It matters more to you, the good of your wife, than it does your own good, the good of your children, than your own good. Remember, Peter had sat at the mount. You think about this when he says, uh, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. He'd sat at the mount. He'd heard the Beatitudes from Jesus' own lips, where Jesus had said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So you have to know that when he says weakness here, he doesn't mean it in a pejorative way. Weakness isn't a bad thing in the eyes of Peter. It's, it's a grounds for honor. It's a grounds for honor, for reverence and respect. To live with her in an understanding way is to live with compassion, companionship, and self-sacrifice. You cannot live with your wife, husbands, the way you lived alone and the priorities that you had before. This is reinforced by his next words. He says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The husband and wife are heirs together. Heirs together, joint heirs, co-heirs of grace, which should make you think of something. Should make you think of another relationship where words like that are used. We are joint heirs with Christ. Paul says this in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the relationship between husbands and wives bears a similarity to the relationship between believers and Jesus Christ. There's a connection between those two relationships, a husband and a wife, like Christ in the church, will suffer together in hope of future glory. Peter says that your prayers may not be hindered. The the you there is plural, and, and grammatically you can argue over what it refers to, but it seems to be not saying, man, if you don't behave yourself, God won't hear your prayers, but to be speaking of the collective prayers of the marriage, of the family. That without this understanding, without this reverence and honor, that your prayers will be hindered. In that sense, you can think of a marriage as the smallest of churches. Marriage is a picture, it's a type, it's a sign. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 5.32 after he's given instructions similar to the ones that, that Peter has given Paul says, speaking of a husband and a wife, I speak of Christ and the church. Makes it really clear what marriage is meant to signify. In the same way that when we come to the table and we see signified here the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for us, in our marriages, a reality is pictured. It is the reality of the relationship between Jesus and the church. This is what makes marriage different than the other human institutions that Peter has talked about. Uh, Government or labor. Marriage pictures a higher reality, a deeper truth. It's, It's more than just cohabitation. Marriage is not the thing that makes cohabitation uh, acceptable in the eyes of God. It's higher than that. It pictures something greater than that. 
It's not just a practical way of bearing and raising children, although it is. Uh, It's more than that. Marriage is supposed to be a certain way because it is meant to correspond with certain realities. There's a higher reality that it is meant to picture. This is why your marriage is not just your personal business, nothing to do with the larger world. It's why we all have a stake in your marriage, which may feel weird, but it's true. It's why when you join the church and you talk to the elders and we talk about uh, the, the example I often give is marriage. Like if you're having trouble in your marriage, it, it's something the elders will want to talk to you about and try to help you with. It's not just your own business. It's a burden we all share. We all have a stake in you. This is also why there's a meaning in these words of Peter's for all of us, whether we're husbands or wives or not. Regardless of, of whether you're married or not, have been and are no longer married, regardless of, of where you find yourself, there's a truth in these passages that is for you. Because if we are in Christ, then we are his bride and he lives with us in an understanding way. He honors us. He gives himself for us. You know, rightly or wrongly, when we talk about church today, we often talk about the, the role of church as equipping. You've heard that word before, that the reason church exists is to equip us, to equip us for something that we're meant to do out there. Some great commission kind of work. It happens out there. The church is here to equip us to do that really important thing. And we judge the church based on how well it equips us. Good churches equip people well. Bad churches don't equip them well for life. But the reality is you can't equip people for everything. right? You have to choose what you're going to equip people for. And so what you're equipped for can actually teach you what you're meant to do. The Bible's the same way. Sometimes you would get the impression from, from the pulpits of, of Christianity in America that the Bible is a marvelous self-help book that addresses every question you have every need that you have, every possible conundrum, there's some sort of a biblical solution, but this is not actually true. When you read the Bible, when you go through the Bible, you find that rather than having a little bit to say about everything, the Bible has a lot to say about a few very important things having to do with human salvation. If you look at what Peter addresses, what he equips us for, you can find out what it is he expects us to do, what he expects the Christian life to be. And what we've seen in the last few weeks is interesting because there's not a lot of stuff, what Peter has said to us, that that is typically what we expect church to teach. He hasn't told us much about how to be happy. He hasn't told us much how to be successful. He hasn't told us much about how to get what we want out of life. He hasn't really addressed, even in talking about marriage, did you notice, he didn't talk to us about how to have a wonderful marriage. He didn't talk about how to have great kids. Nothing about that. He didn't even mention kids at all. He didn't talk about how to have no mortgage, how to have plenty of friends. All of the things I think we turn to church expecting to be told about. There is plenty in what Peter is saying about the good life, but it's not the good life as we imagine it. We understand it. So what is there? Well, there's a lot about endurance. There's a lot about injustice. There's a lot about suffering. 
There's a lot about your silence having to speak for you when people are deaf to God's word. There's a lot about things that no one will ever praise you for because no one will ever see. Because they can't see them. Because only God can. Because they're only valuable in his sight. It's hard to think that even in a marriage, even in a relationship that we conceive of as closer than any other human relationship, there would be strife, endurance, suffering, and yes, injustice. Even in marriage, there will be things to endure for the Lord's sake. But all of this, I think, is meant to retrain our vision. If it's true that the things that really matter, the imperishable good, is so often invisible to us because we look in the wrong place and with the wrong eyes, I think what Peter is doing here is trying to get us to see things differently. He wants us to look to the hidden person of the heart, to look to the inner person of the heart and find the beauty there, the goodness there. And I think it's also true that he wants us to see this, that you can't wear Jesus, that you can't slip him like a ring onto your finger, you can't wear him like fancy clothes. Jesus can't be braided into your hair. Jesus doesn't make you pretty. Jesus doesn't dress you up. Jesus doesn't make you look good in the eyes of the world. Jesus can never be just outward adornments. There is only one way to carry Jesus. It's in the heart. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.